0: Again, welcome. This is week three of our series called Faithful, and I'll explain the the graphic in a little bit here. But this is a a series that's just going through the book of Judges, and it's it's a highly unusual book as you look at some of the stories that it tells us and some of the history that it expands on. Uh, But at the same time, it teaches us a lot of valuable lessons, which we'll get to go through this summer. So here's the reason for this graphic. You see, it says unfaithful. The faithful is very big because the one thing we learn about the book of Judges, the one thing you learn from it, is that God's faithfulness is very big even when it's compared to the unfaithfulness of his people. So the thing that really drives this series is, is the idea God is faithful, even when we fall away from him, even if we are unfaithful. And in fact, here's the series theme. It's on the top of your fill-in sheet. If, if you want to follow along with today's message, there's this little sheet in your, in your handout that will help you follow along, hopefully. Uh, this first fill-in is simply this, God remains faithful even as his people are unfaithful. And that's the, the theme that we see repeating throughout the book of Judges. Now, as we dive into uh, part three here of this series, there's a quick story I need to tell you. It's an adorable story about my middle son, Logan, five years old, and he was in the first service and he was kind of embarrassed by the story, but I I told it anyway. So this last week, we had one of these moments where uh, I was uh, cooking dinner and he was sitting on the counter, you know, helping me, helping me, and uh, we we got into talking a little bit, and every once in a while, you can have this one-on-one talk with your kids, and it's it's just golden. So he's opening up to me. He says, Daddy... I love the library. And I was like, I know you do. You know, they, they, he goes every week. W- one thing he loves about the library is that they have these Octonaut movies. And if you don't have a five-year-old, you have no idea what Octonauts are. That's a good thing. But anyway, they have these little Octonaut cartoon movies. And so every week he goes and he gets some from the library. Daddy, I love the library. Good, good. And he starts to get deeper. He's, Daddy, when I'm grown up, I'm going to go to the library every day and get Octonaut movies and watch them all day long. <laughs> i like, good, Logan, that's a good goal to have. As I'm, I'll help you with that. Yeah, good. And he said, Daddy, I'm going to take, I'm gonna take um, Zephrin with me. Zephrin's a friend uh, that we got to know through our growth group, and they're the same age, and so they've developed this friendship. I'm going to take Zephrin with me to the library. We're going to watch uh, Octonaut movies every day okay. And I'm just starting to giggle as I picture, you know, a 25-year-old version of my son going <laughs> to the library every day and watching these Octonaut movies. And then, then he had this, this really deep question. He said, Daddy, are you and mommy okay if I, if I bring that many movies home? <laughs> and I said, well, Logan, when you're a grown-up, you, you won't live with us anymore. You'll have your own house. And you can imagine what a five-year-old does with that, right? And he goes, <laughs> so you can see it behind his eyes. Dad, so you're saying I have to move out? <laughs> and I told him something I'll probably regret in 20 years. But you know, in the moment, he's just so emotional. Logan, you can stay with mommy and daddy as long as you want. <laughs> so this little conversation with my five-year-old re- reminded me of when I was a kid, and I was exactly the same way. Oh, I can't wait to be a grown-up so I can do whatever I want whenever I want to do it without anybody telling me I can't do it. And, and sometimes sometime between childhood and adults, we lose that dream, don't we? <laughs> Where we realize things cost money or it's not as feasible as what we thought it was. Or maybe, maybe we still do carry some of that around. In fact, you see that in, in our American culture. A lot of times the idea is because of our freedom and liberty, we can do whatever we want. Whenever we want to do it. With whomever we want. Just as long as we don't hurt somebody right? We had that noble clause at the end. And that's a, a, this dream that's still out there. And we might think, oh man, if we could just get to that part where there's no grown-ups, nobody telling us what to do, if we could just do whatever we want, whenever we want to do it, that would be awesome. Well, one thing we learn in the book of Judges is that they tried it. In fact, one of the final verses in the book kind of summarizes it this way. It, in one of the final verses, it says, in those days there was no king. A.K.A. no grown-up in Israel. And everybody did as he saw fit. Now here's what happens when that is the reality. What happens is you fall into a deadly cycle. And this is what Ben shared in the last couple of weeks. It starts out with disobedience. That's basically saying, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. God can't tell me what to do. That's an act of disobedience. This disobedience always, always leads to disaster in the book of Judges. And often in the book of Judges, it means that there's these, uh, the foreign nation that's oppressing Israel, and, and they, they won't let him go. And then finally, the people realize we messed up. They repent, and God sends a deliverer. No matter how unfaithful the people were, God is faithful, and He delivers. Now, there's an element to this today that we're really going to pick apart a lot. And to get to the heart of it, there's this one question that we ask ourselves every day. And it's a question that I really want you to ask yourself today. Because it's, one way or another, it's something that you do. But you might as well do it consciously. Basically, this question comes up to you every time that somebody gives you an RSVP. Every time that you have it to make a, a key decision in your life, in your family, or at work, every time that you can go down one of two paths. You always ask yourself this one question. And, and I would prefer to address that question head on rather than just to sort of let it go with the flow. And what we're going to see today is this question had to be answered by an individual in our story that we're going to see in Judges chapter 4. And this is the question that I want you to be able to answer and come to grips with too. Phil number one, we all ask the question, what's in it for me? Whenever you have a key decision to make between choice A or choice B, part of you, whether hidden or very much out there, it asks the question, well, what's in it for me? Which way should I go? What's in it for me? And I'm going to say this right away. You're thinking this is a trap. This is a bad question to ask. It's not an evil question to ask. The question itself isn't bad. It's how you react to the answer that matters. And that's a key question that we're going to tackle today as we look at Judges chapters 4 and 5. It's about two people. I call them Debbie and Barry. That's not their biblical names, but you'll see their names in just a second. Debbie and Barry are going to write a song and sing it in Judges chapter 5. And Judges chapter 4 tells you why. They had to wrestle with this question, and they were able to be comfortable with the answer. So uh, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to open up in the Judges chapter 4, and... uh, I'll give the disclaimer up front that a lot of things we're talking about today, it's, it's good to have a Bible open in front of you. I know that a lot of you don't. That's fine. Uh, but as you go home this week, there's going to be some things to think about and maybe some things to look at in your Bibles because there's a couple things I'll bring up. Uh, so that's my only disclaimer going into this. Here's Judges chapter 4. You remember Ehud from last week? What made him different? What was his physical characteristic? He was left-handed, yeah, in his right mind. So Ehud was one who delivered Israel. So uh, chapter 4 starts off this way. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They got right back into that cycle of saying, we'll do whatever we want, whenever we want to do it. Uh, So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was named Sisera, who lived in, everyone say this with me, Herosheth Hagoyim. You didn't say it with me. Here's here's one thing about the book of Judges. It's giving you just the basic information you need to know so that you're comfortable saying this is an actual historical event. So there's a lot of details in here. I know that's kind of overwhelming, but just focus on two things. Uh, Number one, the Israelites did evil. They're back in this cycle. And now this guy named Sisera is oppressing them. And here's why Sisera can oppress them in verse 3. Because Sisera had 900 Iron chariots. I'm going to pause right there. If you were here for part one, or if you listened to part one online, why is this so ironic? Do you remember? God told the Israelites, I want you to go into this land. I want you to push out and get rid of everyone who lives there. And what did the Israelites find? Chariots. Yeah. These people, they have chariots. So we'll just, They're determined to stay here. So we'll just ignore them. We'll just back off. We're not here. And so they leave these people in the land who have these chariots, and now it's coming back to haunt them. Sisera had nine hundred chariots, and he cruelly oppressed the Israelites for twenty years. Now I just want to make a, a quick, quick application to your life. When God tells you to get rid of something, it's always for a reason. God wanted his Israelite, he wanted his people to get rid of all these nations and kings that were in the land. And it was hard. It was too hard for them to do. And so they didn't. And now they can see why. And Jesus in the New Testament, if your right hand causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do with it? Cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If God points to something in your life and he says, this needs to go... It's because he knows this is going to happen. You will become enslaved to it. It will become a part of your life. On that happy note, let's go on to the next verse here. Bob. So we got verse 3. So verse 4, here's where we start to get to the deliverance part. Now Deborah, was a woman, Deborah was a prophetess. Deborah was the wife of Le- Lapidoth, who was leading, literally she was judging Israel at that time. Deborah held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. So again, basic information, this is all we need to know. Deborah has somehow become a, a leader of Israel and a judge of Israel. And she, uh, people recognize her, they go to her, and if they have a dispute, they respect her decision on it. She's a prophetess, which means God actually sends the people messages through Deborah, he uses her as an instrument to give messages. And, and when you look at commentators, you know, they, they spend pages and pages talking about this. How could, a, you know, looking at New Testament principles of man and woman and roles of men and women, you know, how could she have authority? I'm not going to go there today. All I'm going to say is somehow, some way, she was a leader and God was using her for a very specific purpose. So Deborah is leading Israel at that time. And now verse 6 is why Deborah's life and why she is such an important part of the story. Debbie sent for Barry. Deborah sent for Barak. And you can pronounce his name Barak, but I'm not going to confuse him with the current sitting president, so we'll call him Barak. Deborah sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali. Again, information just to let us know this is real. And she said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. So now the rest of this statement is God speaking. Barak, go take with you ten thousand men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead and uh, lead the way to Mount Tabor. God speaking. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, and with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. Uh, A couple things here, you see those two yellow words, go take and then I will lure, those are actually the same Hebrew word. In essence, what God is saying is, Barak, I want you to draw out 10,000 troops and I will draw out Sisera and his army. Uh, Barak, here's what you can do. Here's what you're capable of. And this is what I need you to do. I need you to draw up these 10,000 troops and put them on the mountainside. And here's what only I can do. I will draw out this enemy and I will give them into your hands. And again, a quick application for you. When, when you're praying and, or when you're hoping for something really big to happen in your life, it's, it's not like you can just pray something to happen and you sit back and let God do his thing. Although sometimes he does, he can But so often, what we see is something similar. God says, I've given you abilities, I've given you skills, I want you to do what you can do. And I want you to trust that I will do what only I can do. And I want you to notice, this would have been a huge act of of faith for for Barak. To draw up 10,000 troops, which against 900 chariots, it might sound impressive, but there's no way 10,000 troops can take out 900 chariots. A huge act of faith to take those men and to face the enemy head on. You do what you can do. I want you to trust me to do what I can do. And here's what happens. This is a verse, verse 8, that is so controversial because people, commentators, theologians, they, they look at this verse and they interpret it in two different ways. So when Deborah tells him, take your army against the chariots, Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. If you don't go with me, I won't go. If you go with me, I'll do it. What kind of a personality is Barak? Explain him for me. One word. Go ahead. I'll turn off my mic. Coward. Coward. Somebody in the first service called him a jerk. I said, you can't use the word jerk in church. <laughs> but that's I, 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 yeah, what happens when you give people the mic. Coward is, is maybe the first thing that comes to mind. Oh, if you go with me, I'll go. He's saying this to a... Not to be, you know... <laughs> never mind. He's nah. say, <laughs> Saying this to a woman of all people. If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me... I'll... So you can interpret this, oh, he's just being a coward. Let me, let me offer another explanation for this. A- and the reason... Maybe to back up a little bit, when you look in the New Testament, when the apostles of Jesus Christ go out into the world, they made a list of the heroes of this Old Testament time. Hebrews chapter 11 is full, it's a long chapter, it's these different people from history who are good to to model your faith after. And in the entire book of Judges, there are four judges mentioned, only four, that are listed as models for faith. And guess who one of them is? Look at Hebrews says, you should be like Barak, who was weak, though God gave him strength, who conquered armies and nations with the help of God. This is a role model for you. So here's another option, and this is going to come up in a week or two also with, with Gideon. He did something similar. Basically, Barak is saying, look, this is unbeatable. 10,000 men, they're going to be doubting my judgment if I tell them to line up on this mountain against those chariots in the plains they're going to be judging me. They're they're going to be doubting me. They're going to be wondering what I'm thinking. And you know what, Deborah? I'm kind of not so sure either. Is this really going to work? I'll tell you what, Deborah. if you're sure this will work, why don't you come with us? Why don't you give me some encouragement? Why don't you give me some assurance? Why don't you show the men that this is indeed a victory that God will give us? And it was more of an assurance thing, which again, uh, The the Judge Gideon, in a couple chapters, he's going to do the same thing. He's going to want some assurance. Barak wants assurance that the victory can be won. And what we're going to see in the next verse is, again, something that you need to check your own Bibles with because what I'm going to put on the screen is much different than what you're going to see in your NIV. In fact, it's only listed as a footnote there. But here's uh, the way that she responds. She says, very well, very well, Deborah said, I will go with you, and, and the way it's translated, it almost seems like, you know, it's, it's, women can only do this to men, right, make you feel like nothing, and then the way they answer something, very well, if you need me to go along with you, to hold your hand while you defeat this army, I'll do it, you know, it's almost like this uh, pathetic sort of barrack thing, actually the Hebrew is very emphatic, it, it's more like, without a doubt, I'll go with you, I will, I will go with you, literally, no, without a question, I know that this is something that we can win, I'll go with you all the way. And then the rest of this is where things get kind of tricky with the translation. She, Deborah says, very well, I will go with you, but on the expedition you are undertaking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. And in the way that the NIV translate this in the, in the main section, it almost seems like she says, well, okay, since you've asked me to go with you, here's how it's going to end up. Because you asked me, the honor will go to somebody else. And it's almost like she's kicking him into the ground a little bit more even, which women can do also. But when you look at the context, as you look at the footnote in your NIV, this is what's offered as an alternative and this is what I prefer based on the context. Because here's what she's telling him. Okay, to summarize, I know I'm probably losing some of you, losing myself. Here's the context, here's what she's saying. She's saying, I know you're afraid to go. I'll go with you because I know that will win. But Barak, you should not be thinking about whether or not we'll win right now. You should be thinking about what happens after we win. What happens after we win is this. You will not receive credit for this victory because, gasp, the credit will go to a woman. And on hearing this, Barak would have thought to himself, Now, hold on, hold on, hold on. So you're saying that that you're going to make me go into battle, risk my life, risk my reputation gathering 10,000 men. You're going to make me risk all those things, and you're saying that there's not going to be any honor in it for me. Deborah says, yeah. That's what I'm asking you to do. And so at that point, if I were Barak, I would be thinking, well, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? What's in it for me? And that's a question that he had to wrestle with. And he had to be okay with the answer. Now I'm going to do just a little sidetrack here and and focus on something that's really neat and really parallel to this. And I'll give this uh, thought first of all. When you look at the Bible, so often God uses human terms and human characteristics to describe Him. Not because He's human, but because that's just the only way we can relate to Him. So I'm going to use some human terms (laughs) That might sound kind of out of place at first but I'm just using human terms to relate that this is something that God himself had to ask what's in it for me. And to put it in human terms think of it this way from, from before creation or, or as God was developing his plan for it, for you today something that God had to make into the work into the plan was the fact that his creation would be ruined by sin and death and God knew that death was not something that you could beat. That was the 900 chariots standing against you. So Okay, so here's the completely human terms part. So God the Father and God the Son, they're sitting up wherever they are before creation and they're, they're talking to themselves and they're saying, what should we do about this? And the Father says, I know. Son, I want you to go. I want you to go and face that enemy for them. I want you to defeat what they cannot defeat. And completely human terms, adding my own twist. The son says, well, can I bring a few angels, maybe a couple chariots of fire with me? father says, no, just you, son. You alone have to go and face this enemy for them. And maybe the son is saying, well, that's a big job. That's a big battle to face. Are you sure we can win it? Are we sure we can do this? Will you go with me, father? And the father says, you bet I'll go with you. I will be with you. You are my son whom I love. I'll give you my approval. I'll give you my strength. I'll be with you up until the very end, son, until the point where I have to leave you. Oh, son, there's one more thing you should know as you go on this expedition. This battle, this this thing that you're going to face, there will be absolutely no honor in it for you. What you're facing will bring you no glory. In fact, it's the opposite. As you win this battle, it's not going to be you holding the head of your enemy saying that you defeated him, son. At the end of this battle, you will be the one who has to die in order to win. You should know that before you go. And maybe the son, so you say, you're saying I have to leave home? Well, yeah. You can come back anytime you want. The reason I, I put this so, you know, so straightforwardly in human terms is because we often think of this thing, what's in it for me? And we so much put it on our preferences and what we wrestle with. The first thing we need to do is transfer this onto the level where God had to wrestle with that question. And Jesus, before he ever came to this world, he had to ask himself the question, what's in it for me? And you know what the answer was? Nothing. Nothing was in it for him. Still number two, Jesus died because there was something in it for you. And this is the truth that transforms the way we ask that question, isn't it? What's in it for me? What's in it for me? What's in it for me? Well, the way God answers that question is is never he gets that something out of it. When Jesus died, it was not because there was something in it for him. It's because there was something in it for you. And Barak was, was comfortable with that. He was comfortable saying, there's nothing in it for me. But he went out, he got the 10,000 troops. He went out just as he was told. He went out on Mount Tabor and he was there looking at these 900 chariots in the plains. And by the way, plains are where chariots work best. Plains are, are where you cannot face the chariots head on. He was safe on that mountainside with Deborah and with the 10,000 men. And I I want to finish off the story for you. I don't want to leave you hanging. Uh, We'll we'll quickly finish here, starting at verse 14. Here's how the story of Deborah and Barak ends. So on this mountainside, Deborah said to Barak, Go, go. This is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak did the unthinkable. He went down from his safety place. He went down Mount Tabor followed by 10,000 men. And at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and, his chariots arm, and, and his, all his chariots and army by the sword. And, and as you look at chapter 5, when, when Debbie and Mary are singing this song about what happened, it becomes clear that the way God did this is that he caused the dry riverbed to be saturated with water. There were downpours in the dry season. And, and what was once great, a great area for chariots to drive on suddenly became full of mud. And water, and so the, the iron chariots became stuck. God gave them the victory. And so verse 17, so with his chariot stuck, Sisera fled on foot to the tent of Jael. Again, another character. Um, she, we have some information. She was the wife of Heber, the Kenite. Uh, Sisera coming forward, Jael went out to meet him. And she said to him, come, my Lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she put a covering on him. So this fleeing commander of the army, she go, he goes to this tent where he, he was allies with this tribe and she, she uh, welcomes him in and it goes on to say that she actually gave him some nice warm milk after this exhausting day and then she stood guard at the entrance to the tent to make sure nobody would bother him. And what do you think he did? <laughs> Fell asleep, yeah. So jail uh, once he was sleeping, jail picked up a tent peg with her left hand a hammer with her right hand. She went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. And I left some details out for the case of kids who might be in the room. And Sisera died. Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man that you're looking for. And in that moment, Barak found the fulfillment of what Deborah had said, that there would be no honor in this battle for Barak because his enemy was killed by a woman. You, should, you, you can fill in the rest of the details at home as far as how he actually died. It's interesting. Colorful. But what we see in Barak is that he's comfortable with the way things ended. He knew up front there would be no honor in this for him, and now he sees that God has kept good on that. And what, the only thing we have to do now is ask you the question, what's in it for you? What's in it for you? What's in it for you? That's the question you ask dozens of times a day, and it's better... To address it head on rather than let it go with the flow. What's in it for you? It's not a bad question to ask. It's not an evil question to ask. It's just a question where you have to be comfortable with the answer. If you're sincere about following Jesus who suffered and died and rose again for you, then you're going to be quick to answer that question, what's in it for you? What's in it for me? Sometimes nothing. Nothing. Sometimes nothing. And that's okay because there might be something in it for God and there might be something in it for the person next to me. It doesn't have to be about me. Maybe you're in a time of your life right now where you're really, really, really struggling with, with some of those questions. You got choice A, choice B, and maybe the thing driving you is what's in it for me, what's in it for me? And, or maybe you're just in a part of, of life where you're not sh- certain how the next year, the next five years are going to pan out and there's going to be a series of decisions you make. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? And I think one thing that we lose sight of is this. So easy it is to give God the credit and the glory for these big battles, these big victories. The walls of Jericho, that was all God. All credit, all glory to him. This this defeat of Sisera, only God could have worked that out. All the glory, all the credit to him. Jesus on the cross dying for my sins. That's all him. All credit, all glory. Now, let's transfer that to the smaller things, too. To the big decision you're wrestling with, point A, point B, what's in it for me? Well, here's a last thought to, to hopefully help you land that plane. If the means isn't you, then the end isn't about you. Here's what I mean. If the means to accomplish something is up to God's power, not yours, then the end result isn't about what you did, but it's about what God did. And we quickly ascribe that right to him in, in big things. And we have the pleasure and the peace of being able to do that with little things too. He is the power behind your means to accomplish anything. And therefore, the honor and the credit at the end all belongs to him. And this is something that we all struggle with. We'll, we'll continue doing it. It's not a, okay, I fixed you now. Now you can go out and you know uh, uh, say it's not about me. But here's one last thing to keep in mind. And we'll, we'll end with this thought. Debbie and Barry sang a song after this. And I encourage you to read it sometime this week, Judges chapter 5. They write this very long song, and it's very hard to memorize, so don't try to, It's not like what we sing in church. A very long song where they, they look along every part of this thing, about this account, and they say, What's in it for me? Nothing. Because at every step of the way, God was in control, God was in power, God was guiding things and directing things. And it was all about His power to bring about the means. And therefore, the end is all for His praise. And it's going to be a journey to get you there. It's going to be a journey to get me there, where we can look back at certain parts or look forward at certain parts of our lives and sing. But God will bring you there. And even if you don't get to that place in this life, one day we'll be singing with Debbie and Barry up in heaven, looking back and seeing God's powerful means bringing us to that glorious end. Let's close with a prayer. Heavenly Father, in the book of Judges, you remind us of how unfaithful we all are at our very heart. That the sinful part of us desires and craves to be without any leadership, and and we crave to do whatever we want, whenever we want to do it, and, and so we are unfaithful towards you. And yet that is such a small part of the book because so much of it focuses on your faithfulness for us. And we marvel that even though there was nothing in it for you and there never is anything in it for you, you chose to save us and make us your own people forever. We thank you for that powerful love that has brought us to such a wonderful end. Now help us throughout our lives to con- con- continually answer that question, what's in it for me? And, and if the answer is nothing, to be okay with that and to actually gravitate towards that answer so that there might be something in it for you or something, or something in it for the people around us. Help to realign the way we look at things to be more in line with the way that you look at us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name as we also join in the prayer he taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever Amen. and ever. Amen.